Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 this morning. We are back, finishing up this chapter, looking at verses 14 to 21 is our text for this morning, so you can just put your finger there for a few minutes. John Newton, famous pastor, um, has a powerful testimony of salvation as a was a former slave trader um, who was radically transformed by the gospel and went on to be a pastor, wrote the famous hymn, Amazing Grace, but really wrote a lot of other things, too, that we may not be as familiar with. He said this about God's miraculous uh, but yet-to-be-completed work in his heart. He said, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, he said, I am not what I once used to be, and by the grace of God, I am what I am, end quote. He says he's acknowledging the obvious reality um, that while the Father's salvation purposes have been accomplished through the Son at the cross and applied to our hearts by the Holy Spirit on the basis of faith, nevertheless, he and we are not fully glorified yet. We are not what we ought to be. Sin's penalty has been removed, we understand that. Sin's power over our lives, at least its unbroken power over our lives, has been taken away, but sin's presence in our lives has not. It is still very much there. And while the new self, created in God's likeness, in righteousness, in purity, in truth, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, has been put on, nevertheless the old self, which is corrupted with its deceitful desires, still remains, and it seeks to bring us to heal, as it were, short of God's standards all the time. This is true for every true disciple who has repented of their sin and is following Christ. We are not what we ought to be. We are not what we want to be. We are not what we hope to be in another world. But at the same time, we are not what we once were, at least we shouldn't be. But we certainly have not arrived spiritually. That's true for me, and I know it's true for many of you. And the work of shepherding souls in the congregation of the local church is this work of helping people move along the continuum toward spiritual maturity. Disciple-making is not simply going and telling others about Jesus and um, baptizing them and then plopping them down in a corner in the church somewhere until Christ returns or they're promoted to glory. It is also the work of teaching them to observe all that Christ commanded so that they and we can grow up in every way into him who is the head, namely Jesus Christ. The question then becomes, how do we get people to change their lives and their behavior to conform in greater and greater ways to the gospel. In other words, how do we help them grow up spiritually? And how do we do that when they think too highly of themselves? Which, let's be honest, we all do to some degree or another. We all think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Pride is constantly lurking Um, in all the little cracks and crevices of our souls. And all we need to do is just turn over a rock or two here and there, and all the creepy, crawly ugliness will be 
uh, brought to plain sight. So the question is, how do we shepherd people to think and live in a godly way? And particularly, how do you do that when those same people are not interested in what you have to say, perhaps because they believe they are already where they need to be? The problem is that um, we have this task and this responsibility to do this, um, and it's not optional, and yet we are at a loss sometimes for how to go about the work. And part of our calling as believers is to minister to one another in the church, and it is our responsibility, every one of us, not just me or son or or others who serve in leadership capacities, it's not just our job, it's everyone's job to speak the truth in love to one another for the building up of the body. I mean, if you read Ephesians 4, you, you can go through the, uh, the middle part of that chapter and you'll see it's very plain. Paul makes it exceedingly clear that every person, every believer has a vital role to play in this work of maturing one another. And he says that what every joint supplies, that is what causes the growth for the building up of the body in love. So every part has, every individual part has a role to play in this. So then how do we shepherd people toward maturity, particularly, particularly those who are puffed up with pride? That's the question that our text this morning is going to help us answer. Paul is writing to a church, the Corinthian church, that is filled with immature Christians. In fact, he says it in chapter 3, I can't speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. He said, I had to give you milk to drink, not solid food. So he's writing to a group as a whole. They're not mature. They're not godly. And um, they have to lay aside their pride in persons, their pride in man's wisdom, as well as their pride in their own personal opinions and judgments. We saw that in the preceding verses of chapter 4. He says, For who regards you as superior? And what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already filled, he says sarcastically. You, are already, you have already become rich. You have become kings without us. So the, the Corinthians had a worldly and a totally distorted perception of their own spiritual maturity. And that pride and that, um, that immaturity uh, was causing divisions that was tearing the fabric of that church apart. That's the issue that's being addressed in these opening chapters. And in the preceding verses that we've studied the last couple Sundays, he made it clear that the word of the cross and the, and the way of the cross, the way we live our Christian lives, exemplified by Jesus himself and, of course, embodied by Paul and the other apostles, that that life that we're called to live isn't one of ruling and reigning and um, being first, but rather it is one of service, it is one of lowliness and suffering for the sake of Christ. Paul pivots in verse 9 of chapter 4, and he says, I think God has exhibited us as apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to men and angels. Verse 11, to this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly treated and are roughly treated and are homeless and we toil 
We work with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even up to now. This is the humble path that Christ tread. This is the humble path that Paul and the other apostles tread, and he is directing them along toward maturity to see it as the humble path that they must tread as well. How then will he do that in the midst of their prideful immaturity? Well, he's going to do it through a mix of pastoral concern, personal example, potent correction, and a final call to action. He will do it through a mix, a, a mix of pastoral concern, his own personal example, a potent or powerful correction, and he'll end in verse 21 with a final call to action. And I think that actually is a fantastic framework for us as we think about this task of, of, of moving others toward maturity, shepherding one another toward greater Christ-likeness in the context of the local church. Now, some texts are very prescriptive and some of them are not. This one I find, as I studied it this week and going through it, I find this to be incredibly prescriptive, something that we can easily take and emulate and follow. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. I'm going to help you think the way Paul thought about this, that we might be better equipped. And so we'll begin our outline this morning, kind of our first main heading here, and that is that an important element of shepherding God's people toward maturity is that you and I have a pastoral concern for people. You and I need to cultivate a pastoral concern for other people. Verse 14, he says, I do not write these things to you, meaning all the things that he's written in the preceding section, to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Now, Paul is addressing the problem of pride and division in their midst, and he's done that from many different angles. Um, he's used biblical truth. He's used um, imagery and, and rhetoric. He's used logical reasoning. He's even had some carefully sanctified sarcasm in here, in the, as we saw last Sunday, to help them show how incompatible their pride and their boasting is with what Christ demands of his people, which is humility and a lowliness that mimics the Savior. They are as a church, out of bounds. And their departure from Christ's standards of unity and humility has provoked a full-throated response from Paul, which is why he's writing uh, for three chapters, four chapters, to address this, this issue. Some who heard or read the letter that Paul wrote to them might have been tempted to think that Paul was, he was responding to some kind of personal attack, um, that this was for him, this was personal, that they'd rejected his teaching, or that he was more concerned about power because maybe they had stepped around his authority. When in reality, it was none of those things. It wasn't a personal thing for him, and it wasn't a power thing for Paul. It is entirely pastoral. His concern is for their soul. Verse 14, I do not write these things to shame you, to humiliate you, but to admonish you, 
as my beloved children. He says, in case there's any confusion, if you have any misinterpretation of why I am saying what I'm saying and calling you to abandon your pride and to pursue humility, let me be clear. It is not personal. It is not power about power. I have a genuine care for your soul. His motivation was a sincere and a concerned uh, outlook for their soul. He writes to them as his beloved children. He's their spiritual father. And they are his beloved spiritual children. And because he loves them and he cares deeply for them, he wants what's best for them. And what's best for them is that Christ's glory would shine through them all the more brightly and that they would conduct themselves with humility in the church. The, the sinful pride and the arrogance and the selfish division that had just set down its roots in their fellowship was robbing God of the glory he was due in his church. But beyond that, it was destroying their joy in Christ as well as they tried to reach for something that was unattainable. And so he's admonishing them as his children. Now this term admonish is a is an important term for us to understand. It has the basic meaning of exerting some kind of a corrective influence over another person. We get that. However, an admonishment is designed to correct while not provoking and embittering the person that you're correcting. To admonish is to warn. It certainly has the idea of warning. And it is to warn at times seriously. But it also implies counsel. It also implies appeal to the person to obey God's word. So it is, I think, a fitting term for Paul to describe his pastoral concern for their soul. He's going on to say in verse 15 that while they may have many spiritual tutors who bounce in and out of their lives, maybe thousands of them, that's kind of the idea behind the term, they don't have thousands of spiritual fathers who love them and bear spiritual responsibility for their soul. A tutor, and depending on your translation, it might say guardian or caretaker, whatever your text says, a tutor in Paul's day was a, was a slave whom a father would turn his children over to, and the tutor's job was simply to mind the store. Think of a, a someone who just, you know, a nanny taking care of the kids. They get the kids to and from school. They make sure the kids don't kill themselves while mom and dad are out of the house. They make sure the kids don't starve to death, light things on fire, that kind of a thing. The relationship of a guardian to the children is vastly different from that of a teacher and, as Paul is going to describe here, a spiritual father. Very different. His relationship to them was that of a spiritual father. And that was on account of the gospel. Because God had used Paul to lead them to Christ. And God had used Paul and Apollos and, and um, others to, to establish that church in Corinth. And to make it, uh, bring it to reality. And he had this very special relationship to them. He loved them. He ministered there for 18 months. Which is quite a long time for Paul to be in one place. He was no tutor. He, he was no hireling. He was a spiritual father to them, and they were his children. He loved them. And I, I just 
bring that to the foreground to help you realize it's important that when it comes to caring for souls in the church and to shepherd them toward maturity, you and I have to have a genuine care and concern for others' well-being. Paul's concern from beginning to end was the gospel, and everything he did was for the Christ's sake and for God's glory. He loved and he worshiped Christ with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and therefore, by extension, he loved and served those who belonged to Christ, his children in his church. This is really key to, to having the right mindset. You have to love other people as beloved brothers and sisters. Maybe you're not their spiritual father. Maybe you didn't beget them through the gospel by preaching the gospel to them. But they are your brothers and sisters in Christ. And we must love them as such. We just read it in our scripture reading this morning. In John 10, Jesus says in verse 12, He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and he's not concerned about the sheep. When you're a hireling, your treatment of other believers in the church is transactional. That's what ends up happening. You can't avoid it. I'll do this or that for you, But I expect you to do this and that in return for me, to reciprocate in a way that I value and I prefer. And if you don't do that, if you don't pay up, well, then I'm done with you. If you do that, you cast them aside. And Paul says, I'm not a hireling. I I don't serve you in that way. He modeled his care and his concern after the good shepherd. The good shepherd And we need to do the same. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, and I lay down my life for the sheep. When you have a genuine pastoral love and concern for God's people in his church, it tempers how you treat them. You're long-suffering with them. You'll move toward them, even when it's hard. You'll tell them what they need to hear in a way that makes it clear to them that you have their spiritual well-being at heart, even if that is hard to hear. So we must have a pastoral concern. This was the, the environment in which Paul is writing and correcting here in these opening chapters. And he wants to reiterate that. It is not one of humiliation and shame. It is one of pastoral concern. A second important element in God's in shepherding God's people toward maturity, that Paul lays out here in our text, is that he set a godly personal example. He set a godly personal example. If you look at verse 16, he says, you, have, you may have countless, literally thousands of tutors in Christ, yet you do not have that many fathers, And I am your father through the gospel. Verse 16, the implication. Therefore, I exhort you, be an imitator of me. Be imitators of me. He takes the imagery, this picture of a father's love and concern, he takes it to its logical conclusion. Since they have just a handful of spiritual fathers who love and care for them, having begotten them, as it were, through the gospel, Paul says, I urge you to follow in my footsteps. 
And the picture, of course, is a, is a father who's taught his children proper behavior, not simply by his words, but by his personal life. If you back up into the preceding section, he says, I've suffered hunger and thirst. He says, I was poorly treated and roughly uh, poorly clothed and roughly treated. He said, I have had no place to call home. I have labored back-breakingly with my own hands to provide for my needs. He, he says, I, when I'm reviled, I bless. When I am persecuted, I endure. When I am slandered, I try to conciliate as best as I can. I was just treated as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things. And I did that for Christ's sake. And Paul says, you've seen my way of life in Christ. Now you go and do the same. You be willing to do the same. Take your cue from me and by your conduct prove your parentage. As one commentator wrote, Paul's concern is that the Corinthians' lifestyle should reflect the having died with Christ experience which is demonstrated in the lifestyle of an authentic apostle. End quote. See, it wasn't enough for Paul to say, do as I say. He actually goes further than that. He says, not only do as I say, but do as I do. Imitate my pattern of life. He even dispatched Timothy to go and visit so that they'd have another living, breathing example that they could look at and say, okay, that's what I'm supposed to be. That's how I'm supposed to live and conduct myself. Verse 17, he says, for this reason, I've sent you Timothy, because Paul couldn't be there, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And he will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ Jesus, both by his example and just as I teach everywhere in every church. There was no special standard for, Corinth, for the Corinthian church. His standard was the same standard he, he taught in every church that he went to. It was God's standard. He sent Timothy as an example until he could come. This is key to shepherding one another toward maturity. We not only need a genuine care and love for others, that's good, we need that for sure, but we must strive to exemplify the godly life that we want to see in others. Paul wasn't satisfied with simply changing people's thinking. He, he wanted changed thinking to result in changed living. A, a, it, it, just, that you, just the fact that you know God's truth is not enough. It has to transform your life. It has to become increasingly how you conduct yourself. Only then is your life truly growing. Right behavior necessarily, necessarily flows out of right thinking. And spiritual influence that moves people along the continuum toward Christ-likeness isn't just taught... It is, has to be taught. It's not just taught, though. It is observed. It's taught and it's caught. I remember as a young SEM student participating in a small group Bible study and coming to the realization pretty early on after moving and plopping myself down in this Bible study, I thought to myself, wow, I have no idea what caring for souls is all about. <laughs> I don't have any clue. I had this picture in my mind of what pastoral ministry was about. And when I got there, I was floored by what I saw. Because there were godly young men, just like myself, 
who were light years ahead of me spiritually. And it wasn't until I watched them and befriended them, and they befriended me and cared for me and saw them minister God's word to others in the context of the church that I began to see practically how the biblical command to, to shepherd the flock of God among you, how that really works. I had to see it. It wasn't enough just to hear it. I needed to see it lived out. And then I needed to emulate it and imitate it. You want to help God's people and his church be more faithful? You be relentlessly faithful. You want to help people stir uh, God's people up to be more disciplined with their Bible intake? You be vigilant to study God's word and meditate on God's word and pray through God's word and memorize it. You want to encourage people to selflessly serve others? Make yourself a slave of everyone. You want to help God's people store up treasure in heaven and hold the things of this world with an open hand? Be exceedingly generous with your time and your talents and your treasures and show them that this life is not your home. The displacement of your spiritual life like a like a large boat, should suck other people up into its wake. Right? The bigger the boat, the bigger the what? The bigger the wake. And as people get closer to you, if you are running hard, you will, you will I promise you, suck some people up in your wake, in a good way. The bigger the boat, the larger the wake. So our personal example is key. We need to have to have a pastoral concern. We have to set a personal example. And Paul did both of those things. But there's a third important element to shepherding God's people. And it's necessary. It has, you have to be willing at times to bring a potent correction. You have to be willing to issue a powerful correction. As we said in our previous uh, messages on this section, a lot of the Corinthians boasting in men and their pride in man's wisdom, a lot of that was fueled out of a kind of immature rejection of Paul and his authority. Um, Rather than hearing him and obeying God's word as it was taught to them and lived out before them, they simply chose to go their own direction. That's all they wanted. They wanted to live life on their terms. And even Paul who loved them as a spiritual father and set a godly example among them, recognized that there were some among them who were hardened in their sin and rebellion. They weren't interested in living a godly life. And to them, Paul brings a powerful, a potent correction in verse 18, 19, and 20. He says, Now some of you have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. See, they claim they have the Holy Spirit. They were proud of their spiritual gifts, which we'll see later on. They claim to know better than Paul and all the other apostles who were walking the path of the cross in all of their humiliation and difficulty. They thought they had it better. They knew better. They claimed to be the only true mature Christians. They thought they were all that in a bag of chips. And Paul says, okay, for those of you who 
think you can step around God's word, if you think uh, that I am not going to be there face to face, I'll find out, I will come, and I will figure out who the windbags are who are all talk and who actually brings forth the genuine fruits of the Spirit's power to save and sanctify. He said, because, verse 20, the kingdom of God does not consist in words. It's not just talk. It is efficacious power. That's what the idea is there. It's not just talk. It's power. God's kingdom isn't simply good advice that you can kind of take or leave when you want it. It's, it's more than just talk. God's people often know what they ought to do. The trouble is that knowing the good, they still choose to do what is evil. And for that, Paul issues a potent correction. He is holding their feet to the fire. And it just highlights an important element when it comes to shepherding others toward maturity. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes it'll be necessary for you to bring a potent correction. A a warning for people to repent of their sin and to obey God's word. You call yourself a Christian? You profess faith in Christ? You want to wave the flag of Christ's banner as you walk through life? You need to live like it. You need to live like it. This is the force behind the word admonition. Some people think admonition is just all gentle appeal and and dispassionate counsel. It's not. Sometimes it is a forceful correction. And that shouldn't be our first response by any stretch as believers to others' sin or their immaturity, nor should it be our only response to others' sin, correction, but it should be a possible response to others' sin after godly instruction, godly appeal, a godly example, and counsel have gone on unheard. And um, that is true with adults But I'm just going to make a little aside here and address those of you with young children. Parents of young children, do not slip into the trap of never admonishing your children. Don't give in to that. A common mistake I have seen young parents make again and again and again over the years is they talk to their little ones like they're little adults. Paul says when I walked like a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child. In other words, there's a difference between a child and an adult. And they talk to their children, their little ones, like they're little adults, trying to cajole them and convince them to obey. They are so fearful, parents are, of disciplining out of sinful anger that they do not discipline them at all. Don't make that mistake. It's a temptation. It's a temptation in a lot of Christian parenting materials. If you do not discipline your children, it is the clearest evidence that you hate your children. Proverbs 13, 24, He who withholds his rod hates his son. That's the Bible. 
He who withholds the rod of discipline hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. So set clear boundaries. Tell them what you expect and then hold them accountable with the discipline every time they go out of bounds. And it can be done with grace and restraint and self-control in the power of the Spirit. It can be done. And if you're consistent, it will not be long before your young children learn what they can and cannot do. And then you won't have to discipline them that often. Proverbs 22.6 says, Train a child up in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And that's not a promise that you'll make your kid a Christian if you discipline them. It's simply saying a truism that whatever you train your children to be and to do when they get older, more likely than not, that is what they will become. That works in a positive way and a negative way. So if you're diligent to discipline them and set good boundaries and at least the least be faithful to have them obey authority in your home, then you'll see that fruit carry forward more likely than not as they get older. And if you don't do that, if, if they run the show, if they control things, if they live life on their terms, even from the very beginning, guess what? When they get old, they will not depart from it. I'm going to step off my soapbox. But guess what? It's the same is true for adults, for people in the church. God's word is the boundary. His word, the clear teaching of scripture, is the boundaries, just like we set for children. And we all need to be held accountable in the church to God's standards. Which sometimes means bringing a forceful warning. And if it still goes unheard, that's why we practice church discipline and restoration. To keep, and we're going to talk about that as we get into chapter 5, because there, there was someone in the Corinthian church who was living in open immorality in the church, and it wasn't being dealt with. And Paul says, you need to deal with it. You need to correct them. And if they don't repent, you need to put them out. So, so the point is that there comes a time when you have to set a boundary and hold people accountable if they profess Christ to live according with their profession of faith. But before any of that, we must be willing to confront open rebellion in the church. Not out of joy, not, out of sh- not to shame them, not to humiliate them, not to dominate them, but out of a genuine love and concern for their soul. And that might happen on a one-on-one basis, and that might happen on a two- or three-witness basis. And if it goes on and on, it might require the church to go and call this person back. But it must be addressed. So Paul shows us with pastoral example, pastoral concern, personal example, and now here with a potent correction, he ends in verse 21 with a call to action. We said to shepherd souls toward maturity requires a point of decision. And so he says in verse 21, what do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? And so with that, the argument that began all the way back in chapter 1, verse 10, and now comes to a head here in verse 21 of chapter 4, it all wraps up. 
He says, will you surrender your current fascination with man's wisdom and your boasting in men and walk humbly with God? Or won't you? As we said earlier, he draws a line in the sand. He says, the time for choosing is now. The time for choosing is now. And how I come, whether with a rod or with a spirit of gentleness, will be determined by whether or not you repent and obey God's word. Or if you double down in your rebellion and sin. And it's worth noting here, the, the manner of his coming is what's contrasted in verse 21, not the motive. Because the motive for both his coming with a rod of correction and a spirit of gentleness is, for both of those, the motive is love. There's not one against the other. His manner of coming is what is going to determine that. The motive for his coming to them is love. The clear implication is that they have no choice but to give heed to what he has said. Their behavior and their theology need to be shaped up. And there comes a point in all our shepherding and caring for others and their souls when we have to tell people, the ball's in your court. The time for choosing is now. You need to either obey God's word as it has been explained to you and modeled for you, or you need to get out. As we seek to shepherd one another toward greater maturity, which is just another way of describing the work of discipleship, uh, we can mistakenly get this idea that that's a solo project. It's just like you and Jesus. Um, and that's wrong. Sometimes we can make the mistake of thinking it's just us and maybe one other person, some kind of spiritual guru or something that, um, you know, a discipler. But uh, that, that can happen, sure, certainly. But when we define discipleship that way in such narrow terms, we miss how God uses the body of Christ, the local church, the plain, old, warty local church, to make us more like Jesus. I read a, a powerful uh, testimonial a few weeks ago by a pastor in Arizona in which he explains how God used the church through the years to disciple him. Just hi, read a few highlights of what he said. He said, as a young person, in third grade, I saw my Sunday school teacher write a check for what seemed like an insane amount of money and give it to the church and I watched him write that check every Sunday for as long as he was my teacher. In sixth grade, Mrs. Jordan told me to read my Bible for myself, not just to listen to others do it. Then someone else taught me how. Then someone else told me to look for the narrative thread of salvation history in both the Old and New Testaments. In eighth grade, a young dad from church took me to visit the sick people and showed me how to pray with them. Sometimes he'd tell me to jump in his truck and he'd take me to visit the people who were new to our church. When I was a high school freshman, my dad took me and some men from my church to a conference in Jacksonville and we listened to sermons for two days and drank coffee between sessions. I felt like a grown man. Another man, not much older than me, volunteered to lead our youth group at church and taught me how to ask my friends if they wanted to be Christians. 
I played football in high school for Coach Wesley. He was also a deacon at our church, and he showed me how to live a godly life as a public figure in a small town. In college, one of my leaders at our school encouraged, cajoled, and bribed me to take my connection to the church seriously. He went through a season of straying in college, and then he says, eventually I returned to the church and found her happy to take me back. A volunteer opened the door and smiled. A very kind old woman asked me to fill out a card and gave me a gift with the church logo on it. They put me in a group with people my age. Guys my age encouraged me to give and to serve. In the young couples class, I discovered, uh, discovered that I could teach, and then they gave me the opportunity to do so. He said, I quote, I had treated the church so badly, yet the church eagerly encouraged me to pursue leadership. Sometimes older, wiser men would cross my path and take an interest in me, but none of those guys possessed all the spiritual gifts. I learned that they're just men. If I was hoping for a spiritual guru or an all-in-one spiritual guide, father or pastor, they failed. But as parts of Christ's body, they did their job. These were good men and women, each deficient in some way, Individually, he said, they were less than what I needed, but corporately, they were the body bringing me to maturity. End quote. That's it. That is it. That is what the church is. How does God mature his church? He does it by using the whole body on a very practical level. That then is why division is so hurtful to the church. Divided, the church isn't all we need it to be. Divided, the church cannot shepherd God's people faithfully toward maturity. But united, the church is more than enough. And united, the church can shepherd God's people toward Christ's likeness. We need every part of the body, the hands and the feet. We need the eyes and ears, brains and muscle. Each one of us continually clothing ourselves with humility one toward another to protect and preserve, as Paul says, the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Each one, each one of us with a pastoral concern for others, setting a personal example, being willing at times to render a potent correction if needed, and calling others to obedience. Only then can the church become a mature man. Only then can the church attain to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. There is no other way. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have so composed the body with every part, eyes and ears, hands and feet, all these different parts. And we'll, we'll see this, Lord, as soon as we study this letter. You have so composed the body, so as every part supplies what is needed. Lord, we pray that we would be one even as you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one, that we would share in that oneness with one another. Because we've been united to you, we have been united by implication one to another. Lord, help us to live that out. Help us to uh, have a godly concern for one another, to set a good example, uh, not just a good example, a godly example and I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be, uh, 
have the right motive to be able to issue a godly correction if needed and to call others to your standard. Lord, I've been the beneficiary, as so many others here have, of your goodness in the church. You shepherded my soul and cared for these souls through your church. And we are not individually, every one of us individually are not what we need to be or the fullness of what's needed. But together, we are exactly what you have given. We thank you that, I thank you, Lord, for this church. And I pray that you would use it to build up your saints, to disciple one another toward Christ-likeness that we would run to win. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. That concludes this recording. We hope you have been encouraged by the message you have heard. For more information about the gospel of Jesus Christ, additional sermon audio, or information about Cascades Bible Church, visit us online at cascadesbiblechurch.com.